from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Let's join together in our call to worship. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless God's name. Each day proclaim the good news of salvation. Publish the Lord's glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things God does. For great is the Lord and worthy of our praise. Let us worship and praise our God. Lord, break open this word afresh to us. so that we may be transformed and changed even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, not too long ago, someone asked me where my interest in creating and preaching sermon series originated. We had six series here at First Press in 2015, which meant that 33 of our, of our 52 Sundays were part of a series. I like series. As I thought about the question and I thought about the origins of my interest, my mind went back to the mid-1990s. I had recently joined the, the Wayne Presbyterian Church located on uh, the main line of Philadelphia, and I remember my pastor, Dr. John T. Galloway, Jr., uh, launching a sermon series called Wrestling with God. Now, up until that point, I had never heard a preacher uh, string together uh, multiple sermons around a particular text or around uh, a consistent theme. I grew up Roman Catholic, and the, the priests in my parish were pretty consistent in preaching from the lectionary. The same is true for many Presbyterian churches. There's, there's some that, that don't wander too far afield from the lectionary, that set of texts that, that comes on a three-year uh, cycle. And so this was the first time I had, had ever been a part of a church where there was a preacher who was preaching a sermon series. John had decided that Genesis 32, the text that Canon read for us uh, this morning, would be read and heard by the congregation, that John would use it to anchor his sermon each and every Sunday for the length of the series. That Wrestling with God series lasted 18 weeks. <laughs> same text every week, same theme, wrestling with God, but with a new insight, a new angle, a new challenge for every sermon he preached. But still, 18 weeks. That's over one-third of the church calendar. Even by my standards, that is a long sermon series. But what you need to know about that series is that John, who was in his mid-50s at the time, started to preach it at the same time he began treatment for cancer. He would revisit 
the series and the themes he unearthed in those 18 weeks a few years later, bringing them to life again as his beloved wife, Susan, was diagnosed with and eventually died from complications related to ALS. And even as a 21-year-old college student who was pretty self-absorbed, I was still in tune with John's honesty and his transparency and, and was moved by his stamina to walk through these 18 weeks of wrestling with God, opening his own life to us, connecting us to the places where we too wrestle. As he walked through and preached those from those same 11 verses week after week after week, something started to make sense in me. There was a truth about the Christian life that I had not yet accepted. And John was, was clear on it, that the Christian life, a life of friendship with God and a life of following Jesus Christ in the world is a life of struggle. It is a life of struggle. And so for three weeks, the three weeks prior to Lent, and the six weeks during Lent, we're going to take a page out of my mentor's book, and we're going to be invited by all of our preachers here at First Press. You'll hear from all of them, each taking a turn, not with the Genesis 32 text. They will bring their own text to bear to, to think through and to pray through and to proclaim the good news in the midst of this truth that a life with God is a life of struggle. Now, the challenge of preaching this message, preaching it for 18 straight weeks, or in our case, for, for nine straight weeks, is that people, I think, deep down, don't want to hear it. I certainly don't want to hear it. I think one of the great weaknesses of the church, I think one of the great weaknesses of preaching today, and I'm indicting my own leadership, I'm indicting my own preaching here, I don't escape this challenge, is that we so often want to uncouple struggle from a life with God. We so often want to, to, to loosen those, those chains, to set a life with God, to set our life with God rather, free from the notion that it is a struggle. We don't want to think of God as initiating a struggle. We want to think of God who, who when we commune with God, puts an end to struggle. We want to create ministries in the church. We want to preach sermons as preachers where questions can be fully answered, where spiritual skirmishes will finally end and where people can get what they need or at least what they think they need. I'm going to church because I don't want to struggle anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to church because, because I don't want to feel that, that, that pain anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to church because I don't want to be lost. I'm, I'm going to church to find purpose. I'm going to church to, to learn what it means to, to have a life that's settled. I want things to be resolved. And so many people today in the 21st century spiritual marketplace are asking the church, how are you going to do that for me? Preacher, how are you going to do that for me? And if the answer to that question is, 
by inviting you into a lifetime of struggle with God, there's a good chance they may find another church. But I would contend that to be Christian, that to be a friend of this God that we read about, that meets us even now, does not mean that we will experience a struggle-free faith. On the contrary, Jesus himself embodies this notion of wrestling with God. For Jesus to wrestle with God was to struggle with God, to scrap with God's will as the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. For Jesus, it meant to wrestle with God to forgive people that we would say are unforgivable. To wrestle with God means to embody the the ethics of the kingdom of God, even in the face of rejection and persecution. For Jesus, it meant to suffer and even die for the causes of God's reconciliation, for God's justice and peace and mercy. It meant for Jesus to struggle to live and proclaim the promise of hope and resurrection, even in the shadow of hopelessness and death. For Jesus, it meant to struggle with God when God called him to drink from a cup that he did not want to taste and to wrestle with God through the prayer, not your will be done, not my will be done, but your will be done. The pattern of a lifetime of struggle with God is is embodied in Jesus' ministry. We've, we've seen that. But, it, but it, it's also acutely present in the story of Jacob. We just heard a small sliver of that story this morning. Jacob's parents were Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob was a twin. His brother was first born. His name was Esau. And the author of Genesis tells us that as, as Esau and Jacob were, were born, Esau coming into the world first, that, that Jacob literally was grabbing on to the heel, to the leg of his brother. And Greg already shared it with us. The name Jacob literally means leg puller or trickster, one who's trying to supplant. And this story, this birth narrative about these two brothers and his name will simply foreshadow all the events that are going to unfold in Jacob's life. Now, as the firstborn, Esau, was entitled to receive two distinct privileges from his father, two. They're distinct. One is the birthright, and one is the blessing. As the eldest son, he was due those two things, the birthright and the blessing. The birthright was an inheritance privilege given to the first son that doubled his inheritance above any other of his his brother's. And so in in Jacob and Esau's case, Esau would receive two-thirds of Isaac's uh, household, of the property and the wealth, the land, and that Jacob would only receive one-third. The other thing that Esau was, was due was this notion of a blessing, and this was more spiritual in nature. The, the, the birthright is, is more contractual, it's more economic, but the, but the blessing is more spiritual, that the father, the patriarch, would, would bless the eldest son 
And, and as he does, it, it conferred to him this headship, this, this seat as the patriarch of the family, that he would be the leader. And in the case of Israel, as Israel is coming to life through this family, that meant that, that this boy would be the center of God's plan to make the world right. And even though both of these, both of these were reserved for Esau, Jacob felt entitled to them. And his mother helped him on his way to attaining them. Genesis 25. Esau had returned home after a day of work in the open country. He came back famished and exhausted. There's not too much detail within this story, but it does say that, that he, was, he was basically on the verge of starvation. And you've ever been in a place like that, a place of weakness, a place of vulnerability. Your mind is not, is not thinking straight, and, and Jacob decides that he's going to take advantage of his brother's weakness. He's going to take advantage. And, and he says... Brother, I see that you're hungry. And Esau says, hey, can you give me some food? I'm on the, the verge of starving. And he says, I'll make a deal with you. Make an oath with me. Make a pact with me that I will give you some food and, and, and you will give me your birthright. Some say Esau's not the sharpest tool in the shed to make a deal like this. But, but you, you know, maybe, maybe you've been to that place, but, but a place where you're just not thinking straight. And you'll do anything to satiate the deep needs. And, and Jacob plays on his brother's weakness. He plays on his brother's weakness. And his brother makes an oath. And the birthright is purchased for a piece of bread and a simple cup of soup. Fast forward. Genesis 27. Isaac's eyesight is, is, is failing him. He can no longer see and... And he sends Esau out to the, to the open country to, to hunt uh, for food, for game that, that, that he desires and that Esau would bring it back and they would prepare a meal and, and share that meal together. And then after that meal that, that Isaac would give Esau the blessing, the, the head seed in the family. And so that's what Esau does. And, and the, the boy's mother, Esau and Jacob's mother, Rebecca, decides that this is the opportunity to, to kind of get Jacob in. And so she tells Jacob, hey, the servants are going to prepare a meal. Go put on some of your brother's clothes. Go to the closet. Put on some of his clothes. So, so you smell like him. And, and Esau is hairy. Here, here take some of this, 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 this goat skin with the, the hair of the goat and put it on your arms and go to your father. And when he asks you who you are, tell him that you are Esau and receive the blessing. And that's what Jacob does. His blind father smells the clothes. He's eating the food with him. He reaches out. He feels the hair on his arm. And he says, this is Esau. And Jacob says, yes, it is your firstborn. I am Esau. And then Isaac confers the blessing. Jacob leaves as Esau arrives. Esau comes in with all the food prepared. He comes in and says, Father, it's, it, it's me. And Isaac realizes what has happened, that Jacob, the leg puller, Jacob, the trickster, Jacob, the supplanter, went two for two. He stole the birthright and 
the blessing. At this point, the narrator tells us that, that, that Esau was filled with murderous rage toward his brother. And Jacob got out of town. Now, the irony of this part of the story is that even though he swindled his way to, at least in name, claim the birthright and the blessing, he leaves with nothing. He leaves with nothing. For all of his deception, for all of his lies, he still has nothing. Now, a lot happens between chapter 27 and chapter 32. In fact, it's about two decades worth of history for this family and specifically for Jacob. He, he marries two wives. He's accumulated great wealth. And for some reason, he has decided to come home. Maybe he's thinking 20 years is enough time to let that anger settle. Now is the time to go home. And so he sends a messenger ahead of his large caravan bearing gifts for his brother Esau. Look, he's still deceiving. He's still trying to pull something over. Let's get some gifts for him. That may make him more apt to receive me. Well, the messenger that he sent returns with news that Esau is coming out to meet him. And oh, by the way, he's bringing 400 men with him. I mean, Jacob at this point is thinking, I'm a dead man walking. This is it. This is a bad idea. So again, keeping with who he is, the leg puller, the deceiver, the trickster, he decides to do a not very nice thing. He decides to divide his property and his people, his household in two, to send them as they move toward uh, his father's home. And his rationale is, well, if Esau decides to attack, only half of my people or half of my property will be killed and taken from me. Still trying to pull something over on someone. They camp the banks of the Jabbok River. And that's where the story we heard read today picks up. And Jacob spends all night wrestling. Now what Jacob does not know at the outset of this struggle is the identity of his opponent. Right? In the darkness of night, someone has slipped into his tent and someone has started a fight with him. And, and, and if you are thinking clearly at that moment, you're thinking, this is probably Esau coming to exact his, his revenge, to exact justice for what I stole from him. And so he wrestles all night. The writer says that he does not he, he does not get defeated. That in fact, he, he's in some way prevailing, but he's still wrestling. And, and at a point in the wrestling match, the man who is still unidentified strikes his hip and Jacob falls to the ground. I've always imagined this scene. There's going to be some parallels here to Jacob's story and, and all these other stories that surround him. But, but he, he falls to the ground and, and he reaches out and he grasps onto the heel of the man because he's a leg puller. And you know what he demands? He says, I want a blessing. That's what it's all about for him. It's about me. I want a blessing. That's, that's what I'm here for. Give me something. I want a blessing. And he holds on and in a poetic way. The man says to him, what is your name? What's your name? 
He remembers maybe that Isaac, his father, said the same thing to him when he was about to steal the blessing from his brother. What's your name? I'm Esau. This time, what is he going to do? Is he going to tell the truth? Is he going to be honest? Is he going to be transparent with who he really is? And he says, I am Jacob. And friends, don't miss this. It's, he's saying more than just saying his proper name. He's saying, I am the trickster. I'm the leg puller. I'm the supplanter. I'm the one who thinks all this blessing and birthright is for me. And then the man gives him a new name. A new name. He calls him Israel. He calls him Israel. Do you know what Israel means? It means one who contends with God. It means one who wrestles and struggles with God. It means someone who has been engaged by God, not in a sweet, you know, by and by, pie in the sky, when you die kind of way, in an earthy wrestling match. You are no longer Jacob, he says, but Israel. For you have contended, for you have wrestled, you have struggled with God. And, and, and friends, he realizes at this point who this opponent actually is. This is God. This is God starting with him, wrestling with him, and he will not come to a place. He will not come to a place of, of, of realizing who he was created to be, his real identity, his true identity, not as a leg puller, not as a trickster, but his true identity in God's mission to put the world right. He won't be able to, to receive that. He won't be able to reconcile with Esau. He, he, he won't be able to find that purpose unless he wrestles. The blessing only comes, the true blessing only comes after he is engaged in a struggle. God entered that tent. God initiated a wrestling match with Jacob. You see, apart from the struggle, none of this can be realized. None of it. A life of faith is a lifetime of wrestling with God. Jacob bears a new name that says it's so. He and his descendants will carry that name. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, how does the scripture say that we have been adopted into this household? That we've been adopted into this household. And that we too, in, in some spiritual way, bear the name Israel as well. We are ones who contend with God. But let me make a, a really, I think, critical point to wrestling with God. The wrestling goes on. It doesn't just stop. It doesn't just end the night that, that, that Jacob leaves the Jabbok. It keeps going. It lasts longer than an 18 or a nine-week series. It lasts a lifetime. And Jacob begins to realize that, right? He struggles, he wrestles, and he comes to reconcile with his brother Esau. And there is this moment. There is this moment where they come back together and they embrace and they weep. 
But after that, and, and this is true I know in many of our lives, we have this great hope and this great expectation. And what happens though is that we have this high point moment and we think, yes, things are going to turn and things are going to get better in this relationship. And Jacob is thinking, yes, now we're going to be reconciled. But what happens actually is that the scripture writer just tells us in a very simple way that they just begin to live very far apart from each other. That reconciliation with his brother is still going to be a struggle. I love this part of the story as it keeps moving on. You know that old saying that the, the sins of the parents get passed down to their children and to the next generation, the generation of that? That's what happens to Jacob, right? You know who his, one of his sons is, right? Joseph, guy with the nice coat. Favorite son of Jacob. Despised by his brothers. His brothers decide that, that they're going to do away with Jacob, and what do they do? They sell him into slavery. And then, you know, the story that they're just trying to escape that Jacob doesn't want to be a part of anymore, this trickster life, it just keeps coming back at him. It keeps coming back at him because his own sons sell their brother into slavery. They bring back that beautiful coat of the favored child dipped in what? Goat's blood. It's not hair. But it's goat's blood, and they bring it to Jacob. And what do they do? They pull his leg. They pull his leg. Your son was killed by wild beasts. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. It doesn't resolve. You see, the wrestling that God started with Jacob at the Jabbok was just the beginning of a lifetime struggle in his life for reconciliation, for purpose, and to, to see the annihilation of these sinful patterns that continue to mar his family and burden his life, to see them once and for all be gone. But it's a struggle. And here's the point, and I'll close with this. When you bear the name Israel, even in a spiritual sense, you will always at some level, always at some level, be contending with God. If you want to be a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, if you claim friendship with God, if you bear the name, that life will be struggle. Friends, a Christian community was never intended to be a wrestling-free zone, despite what we see in marketplace spirituality. Churches asking the questions, well, what do you need? Well, we can give that to you. Christian community is, is not the place where wrestling with God stops, but rather it is the sphere where we know that we are not wrestling alone. And it is the community that equips us to wrestle well, that equips us even when we are limping to keep following Christ. It's always this wrestling match, this struggle that God initiates, I think is always, always in service to God's grace and God's mission, God's transformation in our life and for the transformation of the world. Lifelong wrestling matches with God provoke us to stop tricking ourselves, 
to stop deceiving ourselves, to stop pulling our own leg in believing that purpose or call or identity or forgiveness or reconciliation or healing or hope or faith or joy or love or even resurrection can ever happen apart from struggle. It just doesn't happen. The Jabbok is just the beginning. The wrestling match goes on. May we contend. May we contend for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.